Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In May, after the Trump administration started separating moms and dads from their kids at the southern border, but before it got a lot of media attention, the president's chief of staff, John Kelly, said that such separation would be, in his words, a tough deterrent. In that same interview with NPR, he explained why deterrence was needed. And the key word here is assimilation. Let me step back and and tell you that the vast majority of the people that move illegally into the United States are not bad people. They're not criminals. They're not MS-13. But they're also not people that would easily assimilate into the United States. They're uh, overwhelmingly rural people. In the countries they come from, fourth, fifth, sixth grade educations are kind of the norm. Uh, They're coming here for a reason, and I sympathize with the reason. But the laws are the laws. And I should say that in the full transcript of the interview, he says these people, quote, don't speak English, they don't integrate well, they don't have skills. That argument that these are not people who would assimilate well, it's been made for a long time. Indeed, it's why we have an immigration system, a system so massive and expensive you'd think it's always been around. But it hasn't. Just over a hundred years ago, a major commission came out with a slate of recommendations that essentially created the immigration system as we know it today, a system that decided to limit immigration through quotas. It was a commission created by President Teddy Roosevelt, who had some concerns about the large numbers of Eastern and Southern Europeans, Jews, Slavs, Italians, who had been coming in to the country. He was very concerned about this thing that folks call race suicide, right, that white Anglo-Saxon Protestant women's birth rate had been falling since 1790, basically, whereas new immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe had high birth rates. Catherine Benton Cohen is the author of Inventing the Immigration Problem, the Dillingham Commission and its Legacy. And she says the original goal of immigration had been to populate this enormous country. And the debate has been... Who shall we people it with? The Dillingham Commission, which was started in 1907 and headed up by Senator William Dillingham of Vermont, but stocked with lots of academic experts, decided to cast immigration not as a question or a discussion or a solution, but as a problem. And it wasn't just the commission that saw immigration as a problem. San Francisco had been hotly debating whether to segregate Japanese and white children in schools. A few decades before, in 1882, the Chinese had essentially been barred from entering the country. But before 1882 and the Chinese Exclusion Act, it's important to remember this. It took almost nothing to get into America. Though there had been clear discrimination against the Irish, not one federal law was passed restricting them from coming here. Indeed, the vast and the costly bureaucracy that now exists and that ramps up as our enforcement gets tougher, that didn't exist for the first hundred plus years of America's history. The quota system absolutely required a labyrinthine system of regulation that far exceeded anything previous, including that you got your visas in the quota era from your consulate from the U.S. consulate overseas. So it actually spread the immigration bureaucracy like tentacles into other countries. Ironically, for those coming across our southern and northern borders, the federal government essentially had an open door policy for a long, long time. The United States did not even bother counting over land immigrants, so, you know, land migrants who were crossing land borders until 1908. So to put that into context, my grandmother was five years old (laughs) in 1908, and I'm not terribly ancient. 
The Border Patrol was not created until 1924. My grandmother was married by then, right? So this is literally just two generations away. So as we've all watched child separations take place over the last several weeks, wondering how little children can possibly navigate without the people that they love, we are living with the legacy of a world that the Dillingham Commission helped create. But when I asked Catherine Benton-Cohen, who's also an associate professor of history at Georgetown University, if we've ever seen anything before that looks like this, it was a hard issue to grapple with. It is a very emotional question. And um, historians like to say that we're kind of allergic to making proclamations about the present day. Um, I'm not an expert on um, the history of children in migration, which is actually a kind of discrete scholarly topic. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the Dillingham Commission and the kinds of recommendations it made and the kinds of policies that people envision with respect to families, there was actually much more of an emphasis on wanting family migration as opposed to opposing it. And that's one thing that sort of strikes me here is, for example, the Dillingham Commission considered recommending, or it did recommend barring single men from entry. Um, It ended up not doing that. Uh, The federal government did not pass a law like that, but that came out of the belief that assimilation was best achieved by families, Hmm. right? That, in fact, one of the threats that new immigrants, and that's what folks called those from Eastern and Southern Europe from the 1880s to the 1920s, those were the so-called new immigrants, that new immigrants were a threat in part because uh, many of those national groups were mostly male, the immigrants who came. In fact, the exception were Eastern European Jews, right, because they were fleeing violence and, and persecution. And they came as families, but Slavs and Italians and and, and uh, other Southern Europeans, those immigration streams were majority male. And that in itself was seen as a problem hmm. uh, by policymakers and by their sort of neighbors and civic leaders, because they believed that families were most likely to stay and assimilate. And they saw, in fact, women as kind of agents of assimilation. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that respect, this emphasis on breaking up families is actually quite different than the historical origins of immigration policy with respect to assimilation. If you were, let's say, arriving on a ship to Ellis Island before 1900, what did it take? What did you have to do? What did you have to show? And what was done to you to get into this country if you wanted to, like, be American, work in America? Well, first of all, you only could have come to Ellis Island for about eight years before uh, 1900. Ellis Island, which we think is this kind of like timeless emblem of United States immigration history, I like to say is literally a monument to federal immigration enforcement. But even at the height of the inspections at Ellis Island, they lasted around a minute unless you failed a test. And in spite of the intense anxiety that they produced and in the many, many hundreds, maybe thousands of memoirs of immigrants or their children where they talk about the experience of Ellis Island, something like 98% of people passed. My husband's grandfather uh, was ill when he arrived at Ellis Island from Eastern Europe and he stayed in a hospital on Ellis Island until he recovered, and Mm. then he was released to the rest of his family. 
You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Carol Miller. I'm talking with Catherine Benton Cohen, the author of the book Inventing the Immigration Problem, the Dillingham Commission and its Legacy. You uh, make this point that uh, in the early 1900s, so exactly when this commission identified immigration as a problem, not a question, not a discussion, but like a problem and something that had to be solved, that almost 15 percent of the U.S. population was born outside the U.S. That's a number that had not been seen in the years before that. It has not been topped since then. I wonder how you think that affected things, the fact that we were at this like high in terms of the number of people born outside the U.S. in America? Great question. So I think it cuts both ways. And I think it's an understudied aspect of immigration policy. And I'll I'll say more about that as we move further into the 20th century. So one thing I'll say is that we probably would have exceeded that percentage. We came very close in the mid-2000s had it not been for the 2007-2008 recession. I think it's likely we would have met that. So what's important about that is to think that the, the last decade is a similar percentage of immigrants in the United States as to a century ago. So that's an interesting thing because we think of the early 20th century as a time of you know great immigration and, and we can see some parallels today, right? Right. But um, absolutely relevant because it concerned a lot of people. Not unlike today, there were many communities, uh, especially sort of obviously the New York cities and the Philadelphias, yes, the Chicago's, but also hundreds of small industrial communities, right? Coal mining towns in West Virginia, iron and steel mining in Pennsylvania, copper mining in Montana and Arizona, um, glove factories in, in the Hudson Valley, you name it, right, that had large pockets of new immigrants, right? So communities were changing, not unlike today. And so folks were, quote unquote, old stock Americans were confronting new kinds of neighbors, And I think the expansion of immigration outside of its kind of usual places has some parallels to today. So Mm -hmm. there was certainly that parallel. But let me let me say something about in contrast, as a consequence of the 1924 quota laws, almost all southern and eastern European immigration to the United States ceased. And there was relatively little demand um, from Western and Northern Europe. So the large quotas for Western and Northern Europe usually didn't fill. Okay. During the Depression, uh, immigration went down everywhere anyway because people couldn't really move. They didn't have, you know, it was a worldwide depression. Right. Then World War II, which is a whole other topic, right, of immigration problems, which we should, I think, leave aside here. But what's interesting is that as a consequence, exactly as the lawmakers had hoped in the 1920s, the proportion of immigrants in the United States fell precipitously and reached its lowest levels by the early 1970s, which means that it was at historic lows in the single digits. Uh, In 1965, when the Hart-Celler Act passed, which was of course, the law that made the quotas fair. In other words, gave, I'm putting fair in quotes here, by the way, gave every nation in the United States the same quota and put Latin American countries under a quota system for the first time. And that was partly because um, by then the quota system was openly considered to be racist, right? That it favored some nations over others. But there's a way in which immigration had become nostalgic and abstract to many Americans because very few Americans were immigrants, quite frankly. So out of this commission, which 
thousands of pages of documents, years to put their work together. What were the recommendations that it came up with? And like, you know, how did this commission 100 years ago create in some ways the system we see today? couple of things. Uh, I like to say that the commission, I think, was one of the most successful government commissions ever convened because almost all of its uh, recommendations were turned into law eventually. So um, its number one recommendation was a literacy test, asking immigrants to be literate in their own language. And by the way, that included Yiddish, which was interesting. So not as anti-Semitic as one might assume. Um, So that was one. The other really important one was that this was the first official recommendation for some sort of quota system. So to underscore to listeners that there was no numerical limit on immigration before the Emergency Quota Act of 1921. Um, We did not have numerical limits on immigration prior to the creation of a quota system in 21-24 So those laws were passed. It took a few years. The commission made its recommendations in 1911. But those two uh, major pieces became American law and became really the centerpiece of American immigration policy, particularly the quotas, because as it turned out, the literacy test didn't exclude very many people. A lot of people were did have the limited literacy required of the literacy test. Um, When... Uh, the Dillingham Commission said, um, we're going to call this the immigration problem. Did that shape, do you think, broadly how Americans started to think about immigration? I just wonder, like, what effect the commission had on ordinary folks? We, we've talked about government policy. How did they shape what ordinary folks thought about immigration? Well, reception is always one of the hardest things for historians to measure. But I do think that a consequence of this very authoritative report at a time when people believed in authority and expertise, right? So in some ways, the trust in this commission and their expertise seems quaint today, Mm -hmm. um, where, you know, we barely believe in facts, much less experts. I think it had tremendous influence. And the digest that uh, Jenks and Locke produced called The Immigration Problem went into five or six editions that were published and revised into the late 1920s. And you'll see the immigration problem referred to as such in rising numbers um, after 19. 19- 11. Mm-hmm. But I think the the thing that's key there is not just that immigration was a problem, but that it was a problem that federal policy must fix. Mm-hmm. And I, I do want to underscore, we brought this up earlier, but I really want to underscore that this was new, that um, the literacy test had actually passed Congress in the 1890s. It had passed in 1913, right after um, the commission made its recommendations and President Taft had vetoed it. Cleveland had, had vetoed it previously. And then Wilson vetoed it twice. And this was because um, presidents understood that it was bad diplomacy to call immigration a problem, to target certain national groups that might anger our diplomatic allies Mm. um, or stir up trouble. And also going to this point about a high percentage of Americans who were immigrants or their children, right? Because realize if 15 percent of the United States are immigrants, then a very large percentage are the children of immigrants, right? Right, right, right. right. Presidents also did not want to anger constituents, right? Many millions of whom were immigrants or their children. So the idea that immigration was a problem was um, potentially a, a political and diplomatic 
uh, pitfall Mm -hmm. and also something that many Americans rejected. I mean, if you want to contrast 2018 presidential rhetoric uh, about immigrants, you don't need to go to Obama or Reagan or Bush or Carter. You can go to Grover Cleveland. And, and what he said about this being a nation of immigrants and immigrants helped build this country when he had a veto message about the literacy test. It's really quite moving. Catherine Benton-Cohen is an associate professor of history at Georgetown University. She's also the author of Inventing the Immigration Problem, the Dillingham Commission and its Legacy. Catherine, thank you so much. Thank you. If you'd like to learn more about immigration, specifically its impact on the American economy, we've got an article from Nature about the role immigrants and refugees play in a country's workforce. That's at our website, innovationhub.org. 